Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, an excursus on natural theology, part 30. For more resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We have now come to the most important argument in support of atheism that needs to be examined, and this is the argument from the suffering and the evil in the world. This goes by different names. Sometimes it's called the problem of pain or the problem of innocent suffering. Among philosophers, however, the problem usually goes under the name the problem of evil. And so I'll often refer to it under that title. But it needs to be understood that it's not technically just about moral evil, but natural evil as well. That is to say the suffering that results from disease, accident, uh, natural disasters, and so forth. Now undoubtedly, the problem of evil or suffering is the most important um, argument in support of atheism. When you consider the extent and the depth of human suffering in the world, whether it's due to natural disasters or to man's own inhumanity to man, then I think we have to admit that it's hard to believe in God. The horrible suffering in the world certainly seems to be evidence of God's absence. To illustrate, in 1985, when Jan and I were living just outside of Paris, the problem of evil came home to me in a new and powerful way through two incidents that were shown on French television. In the first of these, a terrible earthquake occurred in Mexico City, which devastated blocks of high-rise apartment buildings. And as the rescue teams in the aftermath of the quake searched through the rubble for survivors, they came across a 10-year-old boy who was trapped alive somewhere in the recesses of a collapsed building. And during the next several days, the whole world watched as the rescuers attempted to clear away the rubble to try to get to the boy. They could communicate with him, they could hear him, but they couldn't reach him. His grandfather, who had been trapped with him in the building, had already died. The little boy cried, I'm scared! Uh, and the rescuers were desperate to try to get to him. But after several days had passed, there was silence. He was heard no more. Alone in the darkness, without food or water, uh, afraid, this little boy died before the rescue teams could get to him and free him. That same year, a mudslide swept over a village in Colombia. And as the rescuers came to help survivors, they came across a little girl who was pinned up to her chin in muddy floodwaters. And for some reason or another that I can't understand, they were unable to free her from the water or stop the water that was flowing uh, around her. And every night on the evening news, we would watch this little girl's decline. It was the most pathetic sight that I've ever seen. She stood there unable to move with this muddy water constantly flowing into her mouth, spitting this water out. 
And as the days went by, she became more and more exhausted, and deep, dark circles formed under her eyes. She was dying before our very eyes uh, as we watched on television. And finally, the evening newscaster reported that she was gone. These two incidents rent my heart. Oh, God, I thought, why did you permit these children to suffer so terribly? If they had to die, so be it. Let the little boy be killed instantaneously in the collapse of the apartment building. Let the little girl drown suddenly. But why these lingering, pointless, agonizing deaths? I think we've got to be honest. When you see things like this going on, it's hard to believe in God. But as one colleague rightly uh, remarked to me, as a philosopher, I'm called upon to say what I think about an issue, not how I feel about it. And as difficult as the problem of evil may be emotionally, that's no reason in and of itself to think that God does not exist. And so in dealing with the problem of evil, I think it's absolutely vital that we make a distinction between what is called the intellectual problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil. The intellectual problem of evil concerns whether it's plausible that God and the suffering in the world can coexist. By contrast, the emotional problem of evil deals with people's dislike of a God who would permit suffering. And I think it's vital that we keep these problems distinct because the answer to the intellectual problem is apt to appear very dry and uncaring to the person who's suffering emotionally from some terrible evil uh, in his life. For example, I remember that when Johnny Erickson suffered her paralyzing uh, diving accident, uh, a parade of people came through her hospital room trying to explain how it is that God could have permitted this tragedy in her life. Now, as I read her account of these, I thought some of these were actually pretty good, uh, pretty good explanations. But to her, who was suffering emotionally, they came across like Job's comforters, uh, uncaring, uh, irrelevant, uh, arid. And she needed someone to comfort her and to encourage her. She was suffering emotionally. It wasn't intellectual answers that she needed. By contrast, someone who is contemplating the problem of evil as a purely abstract philosophical problem, but isn't going through emotional suffering, is very apt to find the answer to the emotional problem of evil to be superficial and uh, just based on emotions and feelings and not really providing good answers to the philosophical questions that are raised. And so it's important that we keep these problems distinct. The intellectual problem of evil lies in the province of the philosopher. The emotional problem of evil lies in the province of the pastoral counselor. Now, I'm convinced, on the basis of my experience, 
that for the majority of people, the problem of evil is not really an intellectual problem. It's an emotional problem. Most of them have not thought deeply about this issue at all, much read, let, read the uh, literature on it. Rather, their, belief, their unbelief is born out of rejection of God, not refutation of God. It's not that they have a refutation of God's existence, it's just that they reject him. They want nothing to do with a God who would allow them or others to suffer terribly. Nevertheless, I think it is important to talk about the intellectual problem of evil because many people think that their objection is intellectual, even though it is in fact emotional, and by defusing the intellectual problem of evil we can help to get to the real problem and to help them uh, emotionally. Now, in discussing the intellectual problem of evil, it's again important um, that we uh, draw some distinctions here. We need to distinguish between the logical version of the intellectual problem of evil and what can be called the uh, evidential or probabilistic version of the problem of evil. The logical version of the problem of evil says that there is a logical inconsistency between God and the evil or suffering in the world. Uh, if God exists, then evil cannot exist. It's impossible. By contrast, if evil and suffering do exist, it's impossible that God exists. And since evil obviously exists, it follows that God does not exist. God and evil are like the irresistible force and the immovable object. If one exists, the other one cannot exist. And since obviously suffering and evil do exist, it follows that God does not exist. By contrast, the evidential or probabilistic version um, doesn't claim that God and the suffering in the world are logically incompatible. It's logically possible that God and the suffering in the world might coexist. But nevertheless, the objector says it's highly improbable. Given the evil and the suffering that we see in the world, it's improbable that God exists. Now, before we discuss these two versions of the problem, I think it's important to keep in mind just who has the burden of proof in this discussion. We're considering arguments for atheism. In the previous section of this course, we were looking at arguments for God. And so it was the believer who had to bear the burden of proof. But now it's the atheist's turn. We want to hear from him some good arguments against God. So it's the atheist who has to bear the burden of proof here. It's up to him to give us an argument uh, exhibiting premises leading to the conclusion, therefore, God does not exist. Now, all too often I find believers allow unbelievers to shift the burden of proof onto the believer's shoulders. The unbeliever says, give me some good explanation for why God permits suffering. And then he just sits back and plays the skeptic 
at whatever explanation the believer might offer. And the atheist winds up having to prove nothing. Now, this might be a clever debating strategy on the atheist's part, but it's philosophically illegitimate and it's intellectually dishonest. So in conversation, don't allow the unbeliever to shirk his intellectual responsibilities. He's the one who is claiming that the coexistence of God and evil are either logically impossible or improbable. So it's up to him to give us an argument and to support the premises of his argument. Now it's the Christian's turn to play the skeptic and to question whether the atheist has really proven that God cannot or does not have morally sufficient reasons for permitting the suffering in the world. Insist that the atheist bear his share of the burden of proof uh, when it's his turn to present his case against God. Now, because the problem of evil intellectually comes in different versions, when you're talking to the unbeliever it's also important to find out which version it is that he's supporting. So just ask him uh, straightforwardly, are you saying that it's impossible that God and the suffering in the world coexist? Or are you saying merely that it's improbable that God and the suffering in the world coexist? If he's like most atheists, he's probably never thought about the question. And so he doesn't have a clue which version he's supporting. And here you may need to help him to clarify what he himself believes by explaining the two versions to him. Ask him questions to help him to understand what exactly is it that he believes, uh, and then how he responds will determine your reply, whether you need to reply to the evidential version or to the logical version. But in either case, keep in mind that it is the unbeliever who has the burden of proof here, not you. Any comments or discussion about that first point before we look at the logical version of the problem of evil? Bruce? I'd back it up one more step and ask the meaning of the problem. If God doesn't exist, then evil and suffering don't exist. I mean, this is just what happens. Okay, now Bruce is making a good point, and that was why I said, Bruce, that this philosophical name here uh, can be misleading, because it's not just about moral evil. What Bruce is saying, and I think he's making a good point, is that on atheism there are no objective moral values and duties. What happens is just what happens, and there is no moral dimension to it. But you see, the problem of evil doesn't really concern evil. What it really concerns is suffering. And even if there's nothing morally evil about getting killed in an earthquake or drowning in a flood or getting childhood leukemia, nevertheless the idea is that this kind of suffering is incompatible with the existence of a loving and all-powerful God. So I'll come back to your point. I think you're making a very good point about moral evil. But with regard to so-called natural evil, 
that could exist in an atheistic world. Um, and indeed, one would think it's very likely to exist given the laws of nature that govern our universe. There would be, you would expect, a lot of natural suffering of a non-moral nature. Kurt? How are you defining evil? I think for purposes of this problem, what we would just use is the word suffering. That, that people feel pain and are harmed. They go through terrible suffering. So you're removing the moral aspect when you say evil. Yeah, yes I am. I, that's okay. why I, I, perhaps I should have done more to make that clear at the beginning when I said that this is called the problem of evil by philosophers, but it's really what C.S. Lewis called it, the problem of pain or the problem of suffering. Um, now some of the suffering is going to be due to sin and moral evil, murder and theft and selfishness and greed and so forth. A lot, a lot of the suffering in the world is due to human wrongdoing, isn't it? Yeah, but, but there but, are. We're, we're talking about just the suffering, whatever its sources might be. So isn't it good, to Bruce's point, isn't it good that when you're having these discussions that you at least come to an agreement on the definition of terms because they may have in their head yeah. something far different from yours? Yes, that may well be the case. Um, yes, I think that's a good point. Yes. I just wanted to say I appreciate you directing it this way because I – my trouble with this uh, this discussion, when you when you're having this discussion with other people, is how clouded it gets. Yeah. So I really appreciate you you breaking it down like that and saying, okay, well, let's go to this step. And I even appreciate uh, his point that, of defining the terms because I yes. think in this in this discussion, you really do have to di differentiate of what's intellectual, what's emotional. And now I, I never even thought of evidential and logical that because even that helps because when you're talking intellectual, you can't really understand what side they're on unless you, like you said, kind of walk them through what they think they believe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Any other comment or question? It's, it seems if uh, suffering was a problem, then you'd also have a problem with some people being happy and other people being very happy. So there'd be no difference. It'd have to be nothing. Everything would have to be the same. Well, I think that the atheist would plausibly claim, Steve, that given the laws of nature and human intelligence, that we can often do things that will bring pleasure into our lives. Eating, uh, sex, uh, meaningful work. Um, there are lots of things that we can do to make our lives pleasurable and happy. But then there's so much that results in suffering and, and pain. And it's the claim that this suffering is incompatible or improbable if there is or with the existence of a loving and all-powerful God. Right. Uh, to me, that's just a, a matter of degree, plus you're also assuming there's not compensating in other realms, other areas. Yeah, I, I don't think that the atheist is not saying that people live lives that are on balance unhappy. Um, on balance, I, I would say people generally live happy lives. And when we're going through hard times, we generally look to the future and hope that things will improve. If people's lives were, on balance, worse than good, everyone would commit suicide. So it, it is worth keeping this in perspective that, on balance, most people live 
happy lives despite the suffering that punctuates our lives. Maybe suffering is necessary in a world where you like if you don't play sports, you can't get injured. Yeah, okay. So well, you now don't... you're getting into solutions to the question, and that's good, but let's hold off on those. We just want to understand first the different distinctions to be made, and especially this issue of the burden of proof. Because I can almost guarantee you, when you're talking to an unbeliever, what he'll say is, why does God permit the suffering and evil in the world? And he'll look to you to give an answer to that question, and anything you say, then he doesn't have to prove anything. He just has to be a skeptic. He just has to fold his arms and take pot shots at whatever you say. And he thinks that therefore he's justified his unbeliever's atheism. When in fact he, he hasn't. He needs to give an argument as to why um, God and the suffering in the world are either inconsistent or improbable with respect to each other. All right, one more question. Is it Laura? I just have a question. Oh, Nancy, is it? Yeah, Nancy. Okay, there we are. Um, I don't know if this is the right time for the question. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but the gentleman that was in the, um, the Nazi prison that wrote the book Night, um, he became an atheist through his experience in the concentration camp when he felt God abandoned him. Oh, was that Ailey Wiesel? Yeah, I don't know how to say his name. Where, does he, where would he fall on this, or have you read any of his, his stuff? I would be curious as to... Uh, where you think he lies, did he do it from an emotional standpoint, and then... I haven't read Wiesel's book myself, Nancy, so I can't answer that question. I, I don't know where you would put him on, on this continuum. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Dennis? Uh, since you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, since you mentioned that, uh, Wiesel said the question was not where was God, but where was man? That's what he famously, how he famously responded to the problem uh, and of, what did uh, he evil. mean by that? Uh, he he blamed the evil on humanity. Oh, really? Or uh -huh. or the lack thereof among the Nazis. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Well, let's turn now to a discussion of the logical version of the problem of evil. As I say, according to the logical version of the problem, the coexistence of God and the suffering in the world are logically impossible. Um, the atheist is claiming that the following two statements are logically inconsistent with each other. An all-loving, all-powerful God exists, and two, suffering exists, or the suffering in the world exists. And the atheist who propounds the logical version of the problem of evil is saying that these two propositions are logically inconsistent with each other. Now, the first question that needs to be asked is why think that these two statements are logically inconsistent? After all, there's no explicit contradiction between them. One is not the negation of the other. So if the atheist thinks that these two statements are logically inconsistent with each other, he must be assuming some hidden premises or hidden assumptions that would bring out the contradiction and make it explicit. And the question is, what are those hidden assumptions? Well, they seem to be two in number. First, necessarily an all-powerful God can create any world that he wants. An all-powerful God can create any world 
he wants. That's thought to follow from God's omnipotence. And the second hidden assumption seems to be necessarily an all-loving God prefers a world without suffering. So, necessarily an all-powerful God can create any world that he wants. Necessarily an all-loving God prefers a world without suffering. An all-loving, all-powerful God exists. Therefore, he both can and would create a world without suffering, which contradicts number two, that suffering exists. So these do seem to be the two hidden assumptions made by the atheist. Now, in order for this argument to be a good one, both of these hidden premises, three and four, need to be uh, necessarily true. But is that the case? Are these statements necessarily true? Well, let's think about them. First, let's think about number three, that uh, if God is all-powerful, he can create any world that he wants. Is that necessarily true? Well, no, not if it's possible that people have freedom of the will. It's logically impossible to make someone do something freely. That is as logically impossible as making a square circle or a married bachelor. And God's being all-powerful doesn't mean that he can do the logically impossible. Uh, In fact, there isn't any such thing as the logically impossible. It's just an inconsistent combination of words. So, God's being all-powerful doesn't mean that he can do logical impossibilities. Now, notice that if the atheist uh, denies this and says, well, yes, a God who is all-powerful can do logical impossibilities, well, then the problem of evil just evaporates immediately. Because then God can bring it about that both he and evil exist, even though that's logically impossible. So if you say that God's being all-powerful means that he can do the logically impossible, then there just is no problem of evil, because God can bring it about that this um, inconsistency uh, is true or obtains. So if it's possible that people have free will, then it means that three is not necessarily true. Because if people have free will, they may refuse to do what God desires. So there will be any number of possible worlds which God cannot create because the people in them wouldn't freely cooperate with God's desires. In fact, for all we know, it's possible that in any world of free persons, with as much good as the actual world, there would also be just as much suffering. Now that conjecture doesn't need to be true. It doesn't even need to be probable. Because remember, we're talking about the logical version of the problem of evil. As long as it's even logically possible, then it shows it's not necessarily true that God can create just any world that he wants. So assumption three is just not necessarily true, and on this basis alone the atheist's argument fails. Any discussion of that uh, assumption three? Yes, Taylor, did you have a question? 
Uh, yes. Um, my question is, what if they insist that free will doesn't exist if God exists and use the same arguments as mm. the Reformed? Yes, theorist. what I think one would say then is that this argument require, or the, the refutation of the argument only requires that it's possible that free will exists. So as long as it's even possible that there be creatures that have freedom of the will, then um, it shows it's not necessarily true that an all-powerful God can bring about any world that he wants. Thank you. Yes, uh, Stephanie. How does free will um, interact with natural disaster? It wouldn't necessarily address that question. But remember, we're talking here about um, a logical version which says that it's impossible that there be God and the suffering in the world. And that's based on the assumption that God can just bring about any world that he wants. And yet if there are worlds involving um, suffering because they have free will in them, then that means that it's not true that God can bring about any world that he wants. And that, that's crucial for the atheist case that this is logically impossible. So this isn't meant to address specifically that question, though you could adapt it to do that. Alvin Plantinga, for example, has said it's logically possible that all of the natural evil in the world is caused by demons uh, and that they have freedom of the will. Now you might say, well, that's ridiculous, that's absurd. But then you would be confusing the logical version of the problem of evil with the probabilistic version. Granted, it would be fantastically improbable to think that all the earthquakes and tsunamis in the world are caused by demons. But that, that only goes to underline how heavy a burden of proof the atheist has here. He has to show it's logically impossible for God and, and suffering to exist. Cody? Yeah, so, I mean, like you say, your position depends on libertarian free will, but I know there are people out there who think libertarian free will is incoherent, so what if the atheist yeah. does try to argue that, well, libertarian free will is incoherent, because if it's incoherent, then it can't be a possible answer to yes, this. Yes, you're right. I mean, that, that's right. This assumes that it's possible that there be libertarian freedom. Um, and if you disagree on that, then you're going to have to defend that coherence of that idea if you're going to use this free will defense against the problem of evil. Yes, over here, James. I'm not sure I entirely agree with where you're going with number three because God actually did create a perfect world as far as we know. I mean, if, if you look at the account in Genesis, you know, in, I mean, in sin ruined it. So, Remember when we talk about a, a world here, James, we mean past, present, and future. So even if God created a, a universe that is innocent and free of suffering at the first, but then it goes bad, the possible world includes everything, the past, present, and the future. And this world obviously is a fallen world that isn't free of suffering and evil. Yes. Hey, Dr. Craig, it's Pat again. I do have some issues with number three because the term of omniscience, omnipresence, all the omnipredicates indicate that contradictions are possible for God in his realm. Can he make around 
square, yes. Can he lift a rock bigger, uh, too heavy for him to lift? Yes. Because just like in physics, physics breaks down in the presence of a black hole, logic seems to break down in the presence of God. We know that Uh paradoxes exist. We live right through them. In Zeno's paradox, we are able to travel, though we have an infinite amount of points in between point A and point B. So it seems to me, and looking at a logical argument, once you flip it and put the conclusion first, on the other side of that, therefore, just like a math question, Mm -hmm. everything extends from that versus is input into it like an argument i don't know if i said that in a uh, coherent well i understand i think where you're coming from and i would disagree with you that we have examples of paradoxes like the ones you mentioned i i don't think that anybody's been able to demonstrate that there is some incoherence in the ideas of omnipotence or omniscience or these other things but if you do as i say if you do think that god has the ability to bring about logical contradictions, then the problem of evil just dissolves. Well, and I because agree with that Because he can 100%. bring about that uh, one and two are true, even if they're logically contradictory. So that seems to me to just completely short-circuit the whole discussion. Well, it does in that sense, and I agree with, yeah. uh, with the uh, conclusion of what that type of uh, thinking does. But I, I don't, I'm very loath to put limits on God, even uh-huh. logical ones. I don't think that yeah. uh, God is necessarily contained well, by logic. Well, let me make one more attempt, and then, I'll, then we'll close. If you're going to be giving a good apologetic to the atheist, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to appeal to something that he would think is logically incoherent. For, for him, that would just prove that Christianity then and theism is logically incoherent, and that really gives him a good argument to reject it. So I think this would be a, an unwise way to respond to the problem. Well, you're yeah. right in terms of tactic. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just thinking in terms of God himself. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, if we God. do think in just purely philosophical terms and not tactics, I would just dispute the idea that theism involves a kind of incoherence that you suggest. Well, I'm not suggesting it does. I'm okay. only suggesting the person of God and his omnipredicates allows for things that boggle the yeah. mind. Boggle and, the mind, that's fine, and, but that's uh, very different than and saying and Contradiction is a part of something, you know, there are things that we can't understand. And again, that's different to say there are things we can't understand and say that these things are logically contradictory. That's what I would dispute. But we need to end now because we're at the end of our time. So we can continue this discussion next week, and then we'll look at the uh, evidential version of the problem of evil. So let's have a, a benediction, shall we? And now may the God of providence, who directs all our paths, um, even the path of Job as he suffered so horribly and mysteriously, strengthen you to bear whatever suffering he might bring into your life or allow to come into your life during this week and the ensuing weeks. Through Christ our Lord, amen. 
The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.